Well, welcome. You may have the chance to say welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, my name's Johnny Pereira. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are so glad that you've joined us. We view Salem Chapel as a family, a family that has been called to a specific mission uh, that every follower of Jesus Christ has been called to, and that is to make and mobilize disciples who represent the gospel to every man, woman, and child. And so we are glad that you're here, whether you're in this room, in this auditorium, whether you're watching us online, uh, our desire would be is that you would call this place your home, that you'd make this place uh, your family, but we are glad that you're here today. And uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. We are in this series entitled Broken People, Faithful God. We've been walking through the book of Judges. How many, I'm curious, I asked this at the 9 a.m., I'll ask it again here at the 11. How many of you would say, uh, this is the first time that I've been reading uh, or I've read through the book of Judges? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few people. So quite a few people at the 9 a.m. So the majority of us maybe have never read the book of Judges before. Uh, We put out a reading plan at the beginning of this series. At the beginning of September, you can access that reading plan on our website, salemchapel.com backslash judges. That'll take you to the page. You can download that reading plan. We encourage you to join us on that journey if you haven't already. And our goal is is that you would read the passage of scripture that we're going to teach on when we gather together on Sunday, but we given you that passage to read so that you have read it before you come. And and so if that's you, then you're like, wow, what what another crazy uh, chapter in the book of Judges. I mean, who who didn't say that the Bible didn't have drama, uh, didn't have adventure, didn't have comedy, uh, didn't even have horror? Uh, because uh, you could say that all of those categories would be summed up in this, uh, these two chapters that we're going to be looking at in Judges 4 and 5. Now we're coming uh, to the part of the book as we work through it that we're not going to be able to deal with every single verse. Normally here at Salem Chapel, we walk verse by verse through something, but because this book is longer, uh, we're breaking it up in chunks, and so that's why we want you to read it on your own because there's no way we can walk through each verse But we're still going to walk through uh, this passage of Scripture nonetheless so that when you walk out of here, you know what God uh, wants to say to you today through his word. Let me give you a little context to where we are just to remind ourselves because last week we looked at one single verse, Judges 3.31. But in chapter 3, if you remember back to the Judge Ehud, if you were with us a few weeks ago, uh, Ehud uh, was used by the Lord to kill King Eglon uh, violently as well and, and to kill Kill King Eglon, and because of that, Israel ex- has experienced 80 years of peace. 80 years of peace. Ehud was a servant of the Lord that the Lord used to accomplish his purposes to save Israel. And I say that because every week we've been saying that the theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is really about God saving his people. And God is about that. At the beginning of Genesis, we see God purposing that when Adam and Eve sin in Revelation. We see God accomplishing that fully once and for all where he comes back and sin is no more. So throughout the whole Bible, there's that theme, and it's true of Judges as well, where God uses people to accomplish his purposes, and his purpose is to save his people. But now we come to chapter four, and unfortunately, we have seen this cycle, right? Remember the cycle of judges. You have the people sin, they experience the consequences of their sin, they cry out to God for repentance and deliverance. God 
does that for them because he's a merciful and faithful God. But unfortunately, what do the people do? They repeat that cycle again and they sin again and they cry out to the Lord and God delivers them again. And it's just this cyclical pattern that we see in the book of Judges, which is why we entitled the series Broken People, Faithful God. That that can so often be true of our lives. We can live in this cyclical pattern to where we sin, we experience the consequences of our sin, we cry out to God for deliverance because God is faithful, that's what he does, and we experience that peace and we experience that rest and, and we're reminded again that what we've always longed for and those other things can't give us what the Lord gives us and we experience peace, but if we're not careful, we sin again. We disobey God again. We practice idolatry by worshiping other things more than the Lord. And none of us want, ought to want to live that pattern. And so as we've been walking through this book, we've been seeing how we avoid that pattern. Because that's not what God has designed his people to experience. And so we come to this individual that this time in chapter 4, Jabin, who's the king of Canaan, comes in and overthrows Israel and takes over Israel. And really, Jabin is an instrument of the Lord's judgment on Israel, that the Lord is bringing these consequences on top of Israel, not so much to cast judgment on Israel, but to use them to bring Israel back to himself. But more than Jabin, you know who's mentioned more in this chapter is this general named Sisera. And this general named Sisera has a secret weapon it's really not so secret, but it is the weapon by which everyone fears. And is the, it is mentioned as these 900 chariots of iron. If you're a history buff, any history buffs in here? Uh, if you're a history buff, you're familiar with the Iron Age in history. So that's where we would be in this time. 900 chariots of iron. They would have been seen as the most invincible weaponry that would have existed. So you have Jabin, who is, who is king or ruling over all these tribal kings. You have this Jabin. General Sisera, who has at his disposal over 20,000 men with 900 chariots of iron, and they take over Israel, and they rule Israel for 20 years. We'll read about that here in a second. But you know, when I look at this passage of scripture, as I've read it, as I've studied it, I'm reminded, let me put my glasses on here for a second, I almost forgot, I remind myself that Israel was in captivity not because the Lord wasn't doing what he said he would do. Israel's not in captivity because these 900 chariots of iron and this general Sisera was more crafty and more cunning and, and more dominant than the Lord. That's not why Israel experienced captivity. You know why Israel experienced captivity? One reason. Because they made the wrong choices. They made the choice to disobey the Lord rather than obey the Lord. I mean, the Lord laid it out. I've got a plan. I've given you the victory. You only have to do one thing, and that's obey. And the title of this message this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Obedience is a choice. Obedience is a choice. Now, here's what I know. You didn't have to come here today to learn that. That's an obvious thing, right? Right? But I think so often we fail to understand that our choices have consequences. Like, think about it. You made a series of choices today. Now, I didn't look it up this week and see how many choices do we make in a day, but I would have to figure it's in the thousands. 
And some of those choices are inconsequential. Some of those choices are amoral, which, amoral, which means I mean is not right, is not wrong. Like what you chose to wear today was probably not a choice of obedience or disobedience. But it, nevertheless, you made a choice. Now, whether or not you're tuning in or you're in person and you're like, I want to give the first day of the week to the Lord to set my week right. Now, that's a choice of obedience or disobedience. So, so you've made that choice because you're here. You've made a good choice. If you're watching us online, you've made a good choice. Our life is made up of many, many, many choices. But what we oftentimes fail to remind ourselves of is every one of those choices has consequences. Like, I'm going to make a choice after this is over on what I'm going to eat for lunch. Just to let you in on a little secret, I've already been thinking about what choice I'm going to make. I was doing that, like, in the 9 o'clock hour. But you're going to make that choice if you haven't made it already. You're going to make a choice in how you drive out of this parking lot and which way you're going to go home. And you know what those choices are going to determine? I'm going to make a choice on what I'm going to eat. Could be a good choice, could be a bad choice. But nevertheless, I'm gonna make a choice. And that choice is gonna have impact on me. And I'm gonna make a choice on where I'm gonna go and how I'm gonna get there and how I'm gonna get home. And that choice is gonna determine whether or not I arrive at home or not. Our choices have consequences. So here's the idea that I want you to get today as we walk through this passage of scripture here in a moment, it's this. That the victories, let's make it personal. The victories I experience, the victories that you experience over whatever it is in your life are the consequences of the choices that you and I make to obey. Do you experience victory over certain things in your life this week? I promise you, is because you made the choice to obey the Lord. Have you experienced his defeat, spiritual defeat in your life? They're the consequences that you have made to disobey what the Lord has said. And we can really narrow down choices in our life as a choice to obey or a choice to disobey. And what I want you to get today is the consequences of your choices can be tremendous. Tremendous for victory, or tremendous for defeat. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, what I mean by that is you place your trust in Jesus Christ, perfect life, death, and resurrection for your sins. The Lord has purposed for you, for your life to be characterized by victory. Not that you aren't gonna struggle, not that you're not gonna endure trials, but in the midst of all those things, that you will experience Christ's victory that he's purchased for you. But that's dependent upon the choices that I make. See, what I want to give you this morning is that obedience is rooted in four things. So if obedience is a choice, and it's an important choice, and we've, we've made that clear this morning, then let's peel back the figurative onion this morning. Let's see what's at the heart of obedience. And I believe there's four things that obedience is rooted in. Before I give you the first one, let's see where it comes from. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the people of Israel, again, you're going to see that a lot if you haven't realized that already, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Which can I just mention as a side note? And our obedience should not be dictated by who's leading us. Like your obedience to, you call this place your home, to come to this church and not be dependent on whether or not I'm leading this place. No, no, Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is the leader of your life. 
And heaven forbid it would be like, well, I obeyed the Lord until so-and-so died. Verse two, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, mentioned that name already, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Don't want to say that three times, right? You're like, man, I'm so glad I didn't have to read that. Verse three, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Why? For he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron. There's those chariots that I mentioned, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, what I want you to see is what we see in verse 1, that the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people of Israel made a choice not to obey, but they made a series of choices to disobey. Remember, 80 years of rest It wasn't like on the 79th year, 364th day, they were like, hey guys, they all woke up in the morning, they're like, you know what we're gonna do? We're not gonna obey the Lord anymore. And God's like, boom, Jabin's Jabin's there. No, that's not what happened. It was a series of choices over time to disobey the Lord that led them into this place of captivity. And the choice to obey, get this, is rooted, first of all, according to this passage, it's rooted in worship. It's rooted in worship. Obedience is rooted in the worship of the Lord. The Lord promised them that. Man, if you don't put anything else before me and you worship me, the Lord had promised them that they would experience success, that they would experience peace, that they would experience rest. Romans 12, 2, if you're not familiar, is written by a man named Paul who was a missionary during the first century. And, and he's the one who, who really was used by the Lord along with the other disciples to really found and establish the church. And Paul would go from place to place to place of the known world and begin and start churches. And so in Romans 12 too, Paul is writing to the church at Rome and he says, hey, I implore you, church at Rome, to do what? to present your bodies, everything that you are, as a living sacrifice, that this is acceptable to God. This is what God wants. And he calls this type of obedience, this type of worship, he literally describes it as as that. That when I surrender my life to the Lord and I say, Lord, you're the one that I need to look to. You're the one that I serve. You're the one from whom all blessings flow. That that is what? That is my spiritual act, say it with me, of what? Worship. Worship. Obedience to the Lord is rooted in worship of the Lord. And if that's true, and it is, according to God's word, which you just saw, then we can flip that on the flip side and say that disobedience to the Lord is a worship not of the Lord, but it's a worship of me. Newsflash, you... And me, you know what we love to do? Worship me, right? No, I would never say to you, worship me, but I'd say to me, I like to worship me. And Jeremiah 17, nine, many of you know this well, says this about our hearts because that's what our hearts left untethered to the word of God. That's what they will always say. And it says our hearts are deceitful above all things. They are desperately sick. Like that's God's diagnosis of my heart 
untethered from the word of God, left to my own devices. Because we live in a society where you are told you're allowed to have your own truth. It's my truth. This is your truth. Well, that's their truth. Like we live in that today, right? And if you say anything other than that reality, then there's something narrow-minded, bigoted about you. Why? Because we're wired. We want to worship ourselves. So I want to be the one that calls the shots. I want to be the one to determine what's right and wrong. I want to do what feels good to me. And in that is rooted our disobedience because it's a worship of us. And that's what really led Israel to make the choices they made. Think about it this way. One of the reasons why Israel kept living this cyclical uh, pattern of behavior is because what we find is, is that they were sorrowful over the consequences that they were experiencing because of their sin. Like, do you ever play that game at home when you were growing up? Those of you who are out of the house now? Like, you do something wrong and your parents punish you. And, you know, I'm sorry I did this, but really, I can think of times in my life, really, I wasn't necessarily sorry that I wronged my parents and disobeyed my parents. I was sorrowful because my video games got taken away. So I was willing to do whatever it took to get those back. So I'm going to be penitent. Oh, I'm going to do the dishes. All of a sudden, I never have to be asked twice to take out the trash. All these, Why? Because I don't like the consequences that I am experiencing. And when we act that way to the Lord, and when Israel acted that way to the Lord, you know what that's rooted in? Not a worship of the Lord. It's rooted in a worship of me. It's never a proper motivation. Rather than saying, oh, Lord, I wronged you. Lord, I realize how faithful you are to me. I realize how, how gracious and merciful you are to me. I realize how my choices to disobey have even hurt relationships horizontally in my life, and I see the pain that that's caused. Lord, I'm sorrowful over that. Oftentimes, if we're living these cyclical patterns, it's rooted in a worship of me because really I'm not sorry over who I've wronged. I'm sorry of the consequences that I'm experiencing. Obedience is rooted in a worship of the Lord. And I can't make the choice to be disobedient to the Lord and worship the Lord at the same time. Like you can't live in disobedience Monday through Saturday and show up here on Sunday and all of a sudden be like, oh, I'm gonna sing the songs and I'm gonna open up God's word and I'm gonna, but then I'm gonna go and do whatever the heck I want. That obedience won't last long because obedience is worshiped in the Lord. Here's the second thing. Look at verses four through nine. Now we're introduced to Deborah. It says, now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidith, was judging Israel at the time. So what you need to understand about Deborah is she was not only the judge of Israel at the time, but she also was a prophetess. And what was a prophetess' job? She spoke on behalf of the Lord. They didn't have the Bible like we have today. So therefore, she was used by the Lord to tell the people what they should do, how they should do it. You know what I love about Judges 4 and 5? It just reminds us of the reality that some of us maybe need to be reminded of is that the Lord just doesn't desire to use men to accomplish his purposes, but also women. Amen, ladies? Right? It's a beautiful picture of that. I love Deborah in this passage of Scripture. And what did she do? She used to sit under the palm of Deborah, so she had a palm tree named after her, evidently, between Ramah and Bethel on the hill of the country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. 
Now she sent and summoned Barak. Now Barak is the general for the troops of Israel. His name is pretty cool. It means lightning. The son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, so this is Deborah talking to Barak, Barak, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor. Now Mount Tabor was a mountain that was 1,843 uh, feet above sea level. So if, if I had a picture this morning, which I don't, showing Mount Tabor, if you were at the top of Mount Tabor, you'd be able to see far around the area there in Israel. And as you know, if you didn't know this, that if you have the high ground in a battle, you have the advantage. So Deborah reminds Barak of what God has said and says, hey, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops and I will give them into your hand. This is the Lord speaking. Barak said to her, well, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with him to Barak to Kadesh. Here's what I want you to see first of all in these verses, in verses four through nine. Deborah is not giving Barak new information. Like we can read through this passage of scripture as I was even reading through it again this week. And it's easy to think that Deborah is telling Barak something new. But actually she's not. She's telling Barak what he already knows. And here's why I say that. Don't miss this. We just read it, but I want to emphasize it again. At the end of verse 6, it says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? She's not giving him new information. She's saying, Barak, this is something the Lord has already told us. Now let's go claim it. Let's go engage in it. Let's put it into practice. You know what that shows me? The Lord always, can you say that with me? Say that word always, always. The Lord always has a perfect plan for you to follow. Always. Online, say it. Always. Always. Look at this plan. God chose Deborah as judge. That wasn't a mistake. God chose Barak as the leader, as the general of Israel's troops. That was a mistake. You see in these verses, in verses 6 and 7, that God chose the place for the battle. He tells them exactly where it's going to take place. God chose the plan that they needed to engage in so that they could be victorious in the battle. So God chose the leaders. God chose the plan. God chose the place. And get this. Look at the end of verse 7. The Lord says, I will give him into your hand. God also guaranteed the victory. The Lord doesn't say, and you will gain the victory. No, no, no. The Lord says, I will give it to you. It's no chance that you're here today. Did you get that? It's no chance. It's not by chance that you're here today. It's not by chance that you work where you work. It's not by chance that you live where you live. It's not by chance that you have the giftings that you have that we've talked about that a few weeks ago. Nothing that you have that you possess on where you are right now, none of that is by chance. 
God has appointed you to be where you are to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. He's placed you where you are. He's given you a plan by which you should follow, which is God's word. He's put you in the place by which you fulfill that plan. And you know what else he's done? He's promised you the victory. Listen, we read Jude 24 and 25 every single Sunday before we dismiss you. You know why? Because it's just something that we do? No? Well, it's just something specific to Salem Chapel. No? It's because we are reminding us, wait a minute, when we walk out of this place, we are reminded of where we have been placed. We are reminded that we have a plan. We are reminded that we have a purpose. And we are reminding ourselves that we have been given the victory through Jesus Christ. So when we pull out of that parking lot, we know we're going into the places and we've been given the plan in order to achieve the victory in whatever situation that we are in. It's no different than the people of Israel. But see, Barak struggled. He struggled with this. Is God really gonna do what he said he was gonna do? See, obedience just isn't rooted in worship. Obedience is rooted in trust. It's rooted in trust. Do I really believe that what God said is truly for my best? You think about that choice that you make to obey the Lord. It is rooted in trust. See, Barak's struggle was not the plan. We're gonna find out here soon that that plan was spot on. There was a reason why God ordained that plan. There was a reason why God ordained, ordained the place by which the plan would happen. Struggle wasn't with the plan. Struggle was in the trust. And there are times in your life where your trust is gonna be put to the test. My goodness, if you haven't come to that realization by now in the year 2020, you are late to the party. There's times all over where do I trust the Lord to be who he says he is, to do what he says he's gonna do. And that truly is best for my life. So many times the choices that we make can be boiled down to trust or lack of it. I can look at pivotal times in my life where you know what the Lord has done to me? He's taken the training wheels off of my faith. Remember when you taught your kids to ride a bike? Starts off with the training wheels. Man, they think they're awesome, right? They're riding around that training wheels. They got their helmet. Like they just think they're amazing, right? <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden you take the training wheels off and fear has overcome them. And then what do you do, man? Do you remember? I mean, it's been a long time since I've taught my kids how to ride a bike, but they both know how to ride a bike, so I did okay. And you remember you're, you're starting off and now all of a sudden they were so confident with the training wheels on, but what is, what is the... Dad or mom do, they ride behind their kids with a hand on the back of the seat, right? Getting them used to that. And what is that kid having to do? Trust. And then, you know, you let go of the seat and your kids start doing this and they may even fall, but you tell them to get back on, to wipe away the tears. You know, sometimes they want to run into the house and give up. But you're like, no, 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 get back on the bike. 
What are your kids having to do? They're having to trust. And there are times in our life that are pivotal when God takes the training wheels off and says, no, 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 I'm putting you in this position because I want you to grow in your trust of who? Your trust in the bike? No, 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 your trust in me. That I am who I say I am. That I'm after your best. And what's interesting is Barack struggled with trust. He's like, he's like well, Deborah, I'm only gonna go if you go with me. And in the midst of that, Deborah says, okay, I'm gonna go with you. But Barack, you're gonna miss out on something special that God wanted to do with you. And he's gonna allow someone else to do it. And get this, God is always gonna accomplish his plan and God is always gonna accomplish his purposes. You have the choice whether or not you get to participate in that or not. Because God's not up in heaven wondering, oh man, what am I gonna do if Johnny's not obedient to me? He ain't up, I promise you, worrying about that. Because he's got some other guy who can come up here and do what I do. Promise you that. But I miss out. I miss out on what God wants to do in and through me. I miss out on that opportunity to see God shine in an exponential way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know it well probably, but it's one of my life passages. And it's one I've been tested on many, many times. No different this year than any other. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And when I trust him, what will he do? He will make my paths. What does it say? Straight. You know what I found? I know I'm trusting the Lord when I'm at a crossroads in my life. What decision do I make? And I ask this. What does the Bible have to say about this? That's when I know I'm in a posture of trust. When I'm not thinking, well, what do I want to do? Or, well, this feels good. No, no, no. What does the Bible have to say about this? And we need to view the choice to obey as the Lord asking us this. Do you trust me? How would you answer that today? Because the Lord's asking that. Do you trust me? Think about what choices are facing you right now. Maybe they're heavy. Maybe they're like take the training wheels off types of choices. And you know what the Lord's saying? Do you trust me? I've given you the plan. I put you in the place that you need to be. Do you trust me? Because get this. The one responsibility that God has given me when it comes to his purposes is this choice to obey or disobey. That's the one responsibility that he's given me. Now granted, his plan is independent upon me, but God's created me with a free will and the one choice that I have in the grand scheme of what God wants to do is am I gonna obey or am I gonna disobey? Here's the third thing that trust is rooted in. It's found in verses 10 through 24. I'm gonna read through this quickly, but stick with me and then I'll give you the third thing because I want you to see how it's rooted in God's word. And it says, and Barak called out Zebulun. So, so Barak's gonna do what God has told him to do and Deborah's gonna go with him and support him. Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. You know what's awesome? 
is you see that these 10,000 men, like they aren't going reluctantly. Like, man, they're right at his heels. They're ready to go. Just another sign that God's gonna do what he's gonna do. Verse 12, when Sisera was told, so now Sisera gets wind of this, the general of the troops of Canaan was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. What does Sisera do? Well, he called out all his chariots. Like he calls out the big guns. He calls out what is viewed as invincible, these 900 chariots of iron and all the men who are with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon, right where God said it was gonna happen. And Deborah said to Barak, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera in your hand. Do, does not the Lord go out before you? So evidently, because Barak's like you and me, he starts getting a little fearful, worst case scenario, thinking, oh, is God gonna really do what he says he's gonna do? I mean, after all, he's seen, he's seen all the men that are with him. Man, we're with you, Barak, 10,000. We're at your heels. We're like literally that close to you. He's got Deborah with him. She's gone with him. Barak's starting to doubt a little bit. So you know what Deborah does? What every good woman should do. Whatever a good wife should do to their husband when they're struggling, get up. Go after what the Lord's called you to. Guys, like how awesome are you? Are, I mean, how thankful are you? If you have a wife like that, that she's that awesome to tell you, get up. You missed your opportunity. I gave it to you and you let it go. Bye. And I'm trying to help you out, guys, but crickets. Sorry. <laughs> so, so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So he listens to this woman's counsel. And the Lord routed Sisera. I got to circle that word. It's not like, well, it was touch and go. No, no, no. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his, all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to go down, from the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. So evidently he goes to an area where there's peace. Verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. The next three words are the most understated sentence in all the Bible. Can you read it with me? So he died. Really? <laughs> Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. She's like, I'm gonna tell you where he is. I promise you he hasn't left. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead and the tent peg in his temple. Just as a side note, we could have we preached it like this. Guys, never go into a strange woman's tent. Amen, you're dismissed, see you next Sunday. 
right? Could have gone that direction. Wasn't feeling the Lord leading that way, but nevertheless, that's a pretty good principle to live by. 23, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Why did I read all that and take time to read that? Because I want you to understand that obedience is rooted in courage. It takes courage to obey. takes courage to obey. Some of you have made some choices recently and they weren't the popular choices, but they were the choices that you said, man, this is what God's word says and I'm gonna make the choice to obey. And let me tell you something, it's not lost on me that that took courage because it takes courage to obey. 900 chariots of iron, the most complex the most invincible weaponry at the time. It's even a picture from that time period of what these chariots would have looked at. They were chariots that were, if you had them in your arsenal, no one was going to touch you. But you know what I think is interesting? You know, in chapter four, we don't get a lot of description on how this battle went down. But if you go to chapter five and you look at the song that Deborah and Barak sing, Barak sing, they, they give insight into what happened in the battle. See, in verse four of, of what we find in, in chapter five, we see that the Lord caused this massive storm to take place. Because remember, the Lord says, hey, this battle's gonna take place at the base of Mount Tabor next to the river of Kishon. That river obviously is a thriving river still today. It exists. I've seen it when I was over in Israel last year. But along that river, you have all of this desert plains. And if you understand anything about that climate and that, and that uh, area, is that you would have dry riverbeds. But when it would rain, it would flood. So the Lord, not out of chance, but according to his plan, says that's where the battle's going to take place. I want the 900 chariots to be in that place. Why? Because I'm going to send a massive rainstorm, and when the rain comes, those riverbeds are going to fill up. And what is going to happen to those chariots? They aren't going to be able to move. They're going to be stuck. So God took what seemed as invincible, and he made those things of no effect which makes me ask the question, what are the chariots in your life that seem invincible, that are causing you to think that obedience to the Lord is gonna have little or no consequence to overcoming those things? Like you could have a marriage that's not in a good spot and you're like, there's no way that at this point in being obedient to what the Lord tells me I should do in my relationship is gonna matter at this point. Oh, but the Lord says that I need to forgive others the way that I've been forgiven. And the choice to obey in that relationship is for you to own what you've done and to look to that spouse and ask forgiveness. God's giving you the plan. It's just going to take courage to obey. It's going to take you putting yourself out there and say, what if I'm ejected? Well, what does the Lord ask you to do? He's asked you to obey. We go on and on with whatever scenario it is, but you and I have chariots in our life that we are seeing as invincible. 
And all God is asking us to do is to obey. He's got the plan. He's going to accomplish his purpose. He's already given us the victory. He just wants us to obey. To take the courage and obey. And what I love is it's all over the place, right? It took courage for Deborah to lead the people of Israel to follow the Lord. It took courage for Sisera to do what Deborah and the Lord had told him to do. And it took courage for J.L., this woman, who is never mentioned again in the Bible. Like on her resume, she had a hammer and a tent peg, and she killed Sisera, like nailed him to the ground. Like if I got one thing to put on my resume, that'd be pretty awesome. But it took courage for JL. Here's some of the cultural things that she was up against. See, it was countercultural for her to greet this man at the tent. That was the job of the man at the day. And obviously, her safety was in question because she didn't know if Cicero was pretending to be asleep. And she would have gone up in there and all of a sudden he would have attacked her. Obviously, he was stronger than she was. I mean, she had, took a lot of risk to do what she knew she needed to do. Not to mention, hospitality was something that was valued in that day, still valued in that day, that a guest that comes to your tent, regardless of whether you know him or not, you are supposed to extend him hospitality. Don't know about you, but this is the antithesis of that. Will we not all agree? Thumbs up, agree with that? Yeah. Definitely not something you do to your guests. Hey, I got a hammer and a tent peg, you mind? <laughs> Took tremendous courage. You know what that shows me? is that obedience to the Lord always trumps culture and customs. Man, we live in a day where it's not popular to obey what the, Lord, what the word of God says over what culture says. It takes courage to obey. Here's the last thing, and it's found in chapter five, and we don't have time to read through all of chapter five. I encourage you to do so. But you know what else obedience is rooted in? It is rooted in gratitude. It's gratitude. I mean, after all, that's what the entire chapter five is. The reason why Deborah and Barak sing a song to the Lord is gratitude. Lord, for 20 years we were in captivity and we can't blame anyone but ourselves. That's the consequences of our choices. But nevertheless, we made a pivotal choice to obey and to turn from that pattern of living and walking away from you, we made the choice to turn around and say, Lord, forgive us. We want to serve you again. And God, you delivered. Man, what a reason to sing. And this was a pattern in the Old Testament. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, what did they do? They sang. They praised. They thanked. In Isaiah, when God allows Israel to go back to their homeland from Babylon, what do they do? They sing. They praise. In Revelation chapter 5, what do we all do? spoken of doing before the throne of God, singing, giving thanks, praising the Lord for who he is. You know what that tells me? Gratitude fuels obedience. Because there's some times where, man, the lives of the enemy are chirping in my ear saying, yeah, the Lord did that back then, but you have no assurance that he's gonna do that again. Yeah, you've been wandering away from the Lord too long. There's, you're too far gone. You've made too many choices to disobey. You can't get on the right path again. All the lies that the enemy chirps at us in our heads. But listen to me, if you're here today and you look at your life and you're like, man, I've made so many poor, disobedient choices. 
Can I give you hope? Can judges give you hope? That you're one choice away from getting on the right path. One choice. You're like, you don't know, Johnny, all the choices that I've made, all the mistakes that I've made, all the consequences that I'm experiencing. One choice. I don't want to make the choice to turn from my sinful choices and look to you again. That's the story of judges, folks. It's rooted in gratitude. But as I stand here today, Lord, Forgive me for not realizing that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in place of my sinful life, to die on the cross for the sin and the death that I deserved. And you rose again three days later. You've given me the victory. I have a relationship with you. I have a home in heaven. I have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me to live a life for your honor and your glory. God, I have everything to be grateful for, not to mention the countless other things that you've done to show me your faithfulness. Oh, friend, obedience is rooted in gratitude. And I just want to invite you in this time. We're going to sing this song, King of My Heart. It's a song we sing a lot here at Salem Chapel. It's a song we know well. But maybe you just, as we sing, just need to stop and say, Lord, I'm going to make the choice. Regardless of all the wrong choices I've made, I'm going to make the choice today to ask forgiveness of my sin, to repent of my ways, and to follow your plan again. Maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whether you're in this auditorium or you're watching online, you know what that takes? That takes you calling out to the Lord, confessing your sin, asking forgiveness for it, placing your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And Romans 10, 13 says that if we do that, we will have a relationship with God, a home in heaven, the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do what he's called us to do. And we can start living a life of victory, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. Well, let's walk out of these doors understanding we have a plan. We've been put in a place. We've been given the victory. But we need to make the choice to obey. Lord, we're here today to remind ourselves that you deserve one place and that is the king of our hearts. May we not minimize the power of choice. And may every day be taken as a singular choice to obey the Lord for this day. God, may we be purposed in that in Jesus' name, amen.